Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking to someone who you've probably seen on television a good deal in the last couple years, uh, much less before that, although he was a very high-ranking government official, uh, James Clapper, General James Clapper, who was the Director of National Intelligence for most of President Obama's tenure. And after he left office, has become a fairly uh, fairly ubiquitous uh, commentator on... Um, on the country's current situation, on President Trump, on the Trump-Russia investigation. Uh, some of that is, is because he's, he's one of the most experienced U.S. military uh, intelligence officials of our era. Um, he's, he is a, a notch older than most of the, the intelligence the, the sort of the senior intelligence officials who were in place during the 2016 election. If you look at John Brennan, John Brennan is relatively young man. I think he's 62 or 63 years old. Uh, uh, James Clapper is, is I believe now 77. So someone who with an experience uh, years in service that, that goes back significantly further than a lot of these other people. Um, obviously one of the reasons that he is so in demand as a commentator now is he is one of the very few people, probably a half dozen people, who during the 2016 election, which we are as a country or many, I think as a, as a country in many ways, obsessed with in the way that... Uh, the country was was retrospectively and for very understandable reason obsessed with 9/11. How did it happen? Why did it happen? How do we prevent it happening again? The country remains obsessed with the 2016 election, and he is one of maybe half a dozen people who was in a position as the as 2016 was unfolding, as the Russian interference campaign was coming into view, he was in a position to know everything the U.S. government knew and knows. So, you know, that, that, that group includes uh, John Brennan, the head of the CIA, probably includes the then uh, National Security Advisor, Susan Rice. It obviously includes President Obama. Um, so that makes it very interesting when, you know, there's always this, uh, when he... At one point, I think it was this calendar year, may have been late 2017, he said something like, President Putin is handling Trump like an intelligence asset. And so when you have someone who had full visibility, not into everything that was happening in 2016 necessarily, but at least everything the U.S. government knew 
And since obviously he and the other people can't tell us everything they knew, when he says something like that, everybody gets, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, what is, is this, is this a hint of, 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 of what's happening? So anyway, um, you've, you've seen him a lot. I believe he's, you know, under some sort of contract with CNN. I think he mainly appears on CNN. Uh, so you've seen him on TV. Uh, in the spring, he came out with a book called Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from Life in Intelligence that is part uh, military uh, intelligence memoir, talks a lot about President Trump, about about the Russia scandal investigation. Uh, very interesting book. So we're going to talk to him today about the book and about President Trump and Russia and are we ever going to find out what happened and as an intelligence um, professional what can he tell us what are we what are we supposed to make about all of this stuff that we see so we will get to uh, speaking with General Clapper in a moment before we do that let me quickly tell you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee which as as you probably know is is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast Want in on New York City's favorite cold brew? Head to Grady'sColdBrew.com for free shipping on all their greatest hits. Grady's famous coffee concentrate is cold brewed, delivering the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing iced coffee on the market. Using a special blend of Indonesian and Ethiopian beans and chicory imported from France, Grady's has a touch of natural sweetness without any added sugar. Grady's is independently owned and operated and has been brewing in New York City since 2000. 11. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Okay, so let's talk to General James Clapper, former Director of National Intelligence. Hi, General. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, the you you this book came out uh, in the late spring, and uh, many of our listeners will they they may have known of you during your government service, but many more will know of you as as basically a a public commentator since your retirement, since the end of the Obama administration, on a lot of issues, but many of them focusing on 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 the current president. Um, let me ask you, let me start with, with this. In, in your book, you talk about something called unpredictable instability. So what is unpredictable instability? Well, it's the likes of uh, Arab Spring, for example, um, and the phenomenon that I think is still going on in the Mideast. Uh, you know, we had, uh, as a Cold War warrior, uh, we'd gotten very used to... Uh, uh, the Soviet Union, which was really quite predictable, very cyclical behavior, uh, particularly in a military context. And with the demise of the Soviet Union and the demise of the bipolar system, we were then thrust into uh, a world of uh, lots of churn and turbulence. And I think uh, emblematic of that is, is the Mideast. And uh, the things that have happened there are not always uh, predictable. You know, the general trends, yes. But, for example, a Tunisian fruit vendor uh, setting himself afire, um, you know, we didn't predict that uh, 
that would, no pun intended, set off a firestorm in the Mideast, which continues yet today. So that's uh, the general idea of unpredictable instability. So when you talk about that, though, you, you, you speak of basically one of one key part of the work of the intelligence community is to, in a sense, be monitoring every other state in the world and having a sense of kind of where the health of that state, for lack of a better word. Um, is, it, is it trending in an unstable direction? Is, is, is it not? And presumably to give U.S. policymakers, uh, you know, as, as good an understanding as they can since they'll have to uh, make decisions. How, how, does, how does the intelligence community do that? I imagine they do it in a million different ways, but how, how does that work? Well, it, it has, um, you know, a body of expertise and experts, uh, you know, some great young, and, young men and women who study these areas. And we have, uh, the intelligence community has ways that we use to try to be as empirical about this as possible on assessing general levels of, of uh, a nation state's uh, stability. And the general trend has been more and more nations are exhibiting more signs of instability. And so we try to watch that, uh, not being clairvoyant exactly, but certainly trying to highlight for policymakers, decision makers, military people, diplomats, uh, what the general conditions are and that the general trends in country X may be uh, – Growing more unstable, so that's that's what we try to do. We may, you know, we have a, a global. Uh, the intelligence community is a global enterprise. We have people in many, uh, virtually almost all countries in the world, and of course, we have uh, the intelligence community does some pretty impressive uh, collection capabilities to to feed that uh, uh, analytic and assessment process. So, one of the things you talk about is that. One of the more disturbing trends is that the many, basically, we are seeing the signs that you and, 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 and your former colleagues in the intelligence community look for in other countries as sort of telltales of, of mounting instability, sort of trouble ahead, seeing those in the United States. So what, what are some of those? What are, what are, what are some of those in general? What are some of the ones that are, that you, that you and your colleagues were seeing showing up in the U S well, uh, uh, assault on, uh, fundamental institutions, uh, in this country, um, repression of a free press, for example, um, uh, you know, assaults on the notion of an independent uh, judiciary, independent uh, uh, law enforcement, and independent intelligence community. And those are, are things you look for, particularly uh, in countries uh, transitioning from uh, more de democracy to more autocracy. And I would cite as an example... Um, Turkey and the Philippines, just to name a couple. In, in the book, you talk also about dimensions of a country's economy as, as, as signs of that. What are, what are some of those, or what can some of those be? Well, uh, overseas, and this is particularly true in the, in the, in the uh, Mideast, where you have a, a, a population bulge of young, disaffected, 
unemployed, frustrated males. Uh, and so that's that's one condition of, of instability. Uh, large ungoverned spaces is another. Places awash in weapons. Uh, those are all uh, conditions that uh, give rise to instability and also uh, afford a vulnerability to terrorists and recruiting more terrorists. Now, is is are the now as as I'm sure listeners will sense. I mean, obviously, there are some of these that we that we that we do see in 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 the United States. Um, certainly. Uh, in the last almost two years under President Trump, but obviously some of these pr- definitely predate the, the President Trump as well. Do you have a, is, is this a global phenomenon with global roots? Is, 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 are the signs that, that you and your colleagues were seeing about the U.S., do you have a theory of what, where they were coming from, or is it just that we're not immune from the forces that are that are, are are driving these changes in other parts of the globe. Yeah, I think it's probably the latter. I think uh, what we're experiencing now, this so-called populist trend or populist movement, uh, of which uh, our current president is, uh, I, I think, just a symptom of a larger trend uh, in uh, has affected this country, but also countries, particularly in Europe. Uh, you know, a, a resentment uh, of frustration with uh, central government and uh, a, an interest in uh, uh, a lack of faith in, in what a, a central government can do. And so that's certainly what occasioned, I think, uh, a pro- propelled uh, Trump to the White House. And we've seen this in, in other countries, uh, particularly in East Europe, Uh where there's been a, a trend towards populism, which has thrust into office those who have uh, autocratic instincts. <clears throat> so one of the things I, I would just trying to think over the the decades, I, I would guess roughly half of your professional career was in the Cold War era, and then maybe half, maybe a little less than half, would be in the in the post Cold War era. Obviously, for, for those of us, I, I'm much younger, but I have a, you know, a, a chunk of my life that was bef- before the, the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, the Cold War was very frightening, but it also had, as I think you just alluded to, it, it did create a certain level of, of stability in, in the global system, in the sense that you had two sort of camps, for lack of a better word. Um, how, where do you see... Well, tell tell us first about you know your your the the first part of your career was during that era. What did you do during yes, was, the Cold uh, War? I guess uh, <laughs> one way to put yeah, it. Exactly. Uh, I uh, I remember uh, you know the bookends for me were the, the the wall in Berlin, and I remember going to Berlin as a college student um, in Christmas of 1959, which was right before the wall went up. And I later visited in 1990, I think it was, uh, late 89 or 90, as a two-star general in the Air Force when the wall had come down. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, that, those are kind of the symbolic bookends of, of for me, uh, the Cold War. Uh, on the one hand, a very uh, fearsome time uh, when you think about uh, two huge nuclear powers pitted against one another. But all other threats were sort of uh, uh, 
uh, included in uh, or subsumed, I should say, in that greater threat. And they, and while it was disturbing and and required a lot of vigilance, there was also, as I alluded to earlier, a certain predictability uh, because we kind of understood uh, the Soviets. They understood us, and we behaved, uh, I think, temperately for the most part because of that uh, mutual uh, deterrence and mutual threat uh, presented by our respective uh, nuclear arsenals. So there was a certain stability, if you will, which is kind of not the case now. So one thing, uh, one, 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 I obviously get to questions about Russia today and, and President Trump and so forth. But one thing I wanted to ask you about is is you were uh, director of national intelligence for a number of years, and that job had had a pretty significant turnover. It, the job only came into existence during pres- the second President Bush's term as sort of part of the post-9-11 reforms, reorganizations of the intelligence community, and, and it had had a few occupants, and I, I think you were... You were the DNI for basically almost now, you know, roughly half the time there was a DNI. What did the, right. what does the DNI do, and how did that job change over the course of your tenure in that position? Well, just uh, you alluded to the, you alluded to the history of this. It, it um, grew out of a recommendation from the nine eleven commission, which was, of course, uh, set up to investigate. Uh, the 9-11 attacks and, you know, why they occurred and all that. And one of their major conclusions was that the intelligence community required a leader uh, whose full-time job would be to, to integrate, coordinate, and lead the community in its entirety, as opposed to the prior construct where the director of the Central Intelligence Agency had a second hat uh, as the director of Central Intelligence to also oversee uh, the entire community. Um, I can attest, having been an intelligence agency director myself twice for almost nine years, that that running one of these agencies is a full-time, 7 by 24 all-consuming job, and I think it's very difficult on a part-time basis to run the community. So it was all that that led to, again, as you you alluded, signing into law what was called, is called the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, which... President Bush signed into law on uh, December 17th, uh, 2004, and the office was stood up in uh, the following April 2005. The first three incumbents uh, were, um, uh, they, I, they went about 52 months, all, all three of them together, and I went about six and a half years as, as DNI. And what I tried to do was to go back to... Uh, what I think the 9-11 Commission intended, which was to focus on the integration, coordination, and collaboration between and among the uh, 16 components uh, of the intelligence community. And that's what I tried to push during my uh, six-plus years uh, in office. Do you, do you think the current construct is, is, a, is a good one? Well, it's not perfect. Uh, I The older I've gotten, the more and more... Uh, uh, skeptical I am about uh, reorganizing. Right. I don't care what reorgan what organizational scheme you have. There are always going to be defects in, in it, and <clears throat> you just have to compensate for that with leadership. 
So one of the things that was discussed in the run-up to the uh, passage of the uh, IRTPA was, <clears throat> gee, maybe we ought to have a juggernaut Department of Intelligence and just combine all these intelligence elements uh, into one uh, department, cabinet department. Uh, fortunately, we didn't do that. I think uh, the arrangement, while it's not elegant uh, in a Harvard Business School context, works and is a good balance between keeping the nation safe and secure and trying to protect civilities and privacy of, of our people. Got it. So you talk about this in your book, and there are obviously still, I would assume, uh, great limitations because of classification and all sort, you know, all, all, the, all the reasons people know about. But what can you tell us in brief about what you saw and what you learned and what you were concerned about in the last six months of your tenure as hints of what we now know, at least of the, 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 the Russian intelligence, Russian state attempt to interfere, subvert the 2016 election. What, right. what, what, did, well, what, did, what were you seeing that, that, that made you concerned? What did you not see? What can you tell us? Well, I have uh, seen a lot of bad stuff in my 50-plus years in intelligence, but I don't think anything that disturbed me as much as when I uh, <clears throat> began to comprehend the, the magnitude and aggressiveness and the multi, multi-dimensional nature of the Russian interference in our election 2016. The Russians have a long history of interfering in elections, theirs and other people's. And they've, uh, and to include a long history of interfering in our elections, going back to at least the 60s, but never, never uh, as direct and aggressive and multidimensional as what they did in 2016. And, you know, revelation of, of all this didn't occur on one day, but uh, as we gained more insight and understanding about what the Russians were doing, it was really viscerally disturbing to me. And it was one of the principal motivations, maybe the principal motivation for why I decided to write a book about this, to share as best I could and do my little part to try to educate uh, the American public about uh, what a threat, a profound threat Russia is, which is seeking, was seeking then and continues to seek to undermine our the fundamental pillars of our system. Now, is that, is that, I would assume that is basically if you if you see a a geopolitical adversary that you would like them to be as wrong-footed and unstable and and sort of needing to work on their own balance as opposed to looking abroad as possible. Is that is that basically what we're talking about? If we if we look at everything that happened in 2016 and and I would assume that continues on 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 some basis, it is not so much to do us a specific sort of physical or concrete harm, but to throw us off balance as much as possible. And things that go into that are uh, lack of trust in institutions. Well, uh, you well, know. The, yeah. the, what the Russians seek to do is, is to weaken, uh, weaken us by uh, uh, prompting, stimulating, exploiting the polarization and divisiveness uh, in our society, and and they did that in the in the run up to the 2016 election by sowing doubt, discord, uh, a doubt in our system, and they 
fostered the idea that truth isn't knowable. They had messages for everyone, for Black Lives Matter, for white supremacists, for pro-gun control, for anti-gun control, for uh, anti-Muslim, anti-Jew, anti-Mexican. They exploited by messaging, very skillful, particularly and the big enabler here, obviously, is social media. And this represents the, their uh, sort of uh, second dimension of the way they combat us. And this starts with Putin, who has a fundamental animus for this country and for uh, what we stand for. And so to the extent that the Russians can weaken us internally, that, in their minds, makes them stronger. Let me ask you this. There's, at least for what we in the public know right now, we know there was various meetings, you know, that Trump Tower meeting. We know that there was a lot of suspicious stuff. Uh, we don't really know how high it went. We don't know. Does Is there some sort of, uh, you know, is, is the president compromised in some way? And, and I guess what I was getting at is intelligence professionals often have to give their best judgments to policymakers based on all the available information. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. What do you, what would you tell me if I were needing well, we to make, typically, yeah. we typically don't, we typically don't do that on our, on our own country. Right. No, I understand that. At, I'm saying that's why I'm saying it's countries. like a hypothetical. Well, it's a very important uh, uh, qualification here right. because the intelligence community is not about spying on the United States. Uh, with respect to uh, the issue of collusion, in the intelligence community assessment that we published and briefed President-elect Trump on the 6th of January 2017, there was nothing in there about collusion, the suggestion of collusion. Uh, I, I think it's useful, though, to step back and just ask the question, why all those contacts with Russia and representatives of the Russian government, our arch-adversary? Again, I don't know about collusion. In my book, I devote a chapter to the striking parallels and similarities between the Trump campaign and what the Russians were doing and saying, particularly with respect to the attacks on Hillary Clinton. We've since learned, of course, about We didn't know contemporaneously about the Trump Tower meeting uh, in June of 2016. Uh, it's hard for me to believe there was only one such uh, meeting. There are those who would argue that the president's uh, speech at a rally in July of 2017, in which he exhorted the Russians, our arch-adversary, to help him in, in his campaign against his, his opponent, his political opponent, by finding her missing 30,000 emails. And as we since learned with the very revealing indictment in February from the uh, special counsel Mueller against the 12 GRU officers, the Russians complied that very day. After hours, they went out to seek, to search for those missing uh, emails. So I don't know if it, you know. I don't know what the legal definition of collusion is, and I can't say whether uh, the the Russians uh, have something on President Trump or not. That's why it's so important that Special Counsel Mueller's investigation be allowed to to be completed in due course, because of the cloud that this issue uh, has cast over the presidency and, for that matter, the country. And I think the only hope for resolving that issue, one way or the other, is Special Counsel Mueller. 
What was your reaction to the president's summit meeting in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin? What was just at a basic level, what you saw there, what did it make you think? Did it change well, your judgments? Anything like that? As a former member of the intelligence community, I was appalled that he would take the word of Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence community and the fact that he refused to confront uh, Putin personally and directly about their interference in our election. And the, the evidence for which, by the way, is overwhelming. Did it, did it, I mean, when I saw that, and obviously with much, much less knowledge of these things, I think like many people, it was, uh, it was pretty hard to believe that there wasn't something in the background that we don't know that would explain that kind of behavior. Yeah, well, as I've often said uh, publicly, uh, you can be sure that Special Counsel Mueller knows a lot more than we do. I, I don't, but uh, I, he, I'm sure he does. Tell us about this. You, your, your tenure overlapped significantly with his. What can you tell us about him as a... Uh, obviously, the, the FBI is both law enforcement and also has a significant counterintelligence dimension. What can you tell us about him? What kind of, what sort of professional is he? What can you tell us that gives us might give us some sense about how he would be conducting this investigation? I, I served with him as uh, he, he he became director of the FBI uh, just a few days before uh, 9/11, and I became director of what's now the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency two days afterwards. So I I, I did you know I knew knew him and worked with him. And I think he is uh, eminent uh, choice, eminently best choice for that uh, for that position, as critical and sensitive as it is. His, his uh, integrity is impeccable. Uh, he is a dedicated, uh, humble public servant. So uh, I can't say enough good things about Bob Mueller. Was there? How do you see? Let me ask you this. How, speaking to your fellow citizens. As we look at, we have this, uh, this, this special counsel investigation. We have, depending on the outcome of the elections in a couple months, you may have congressional investigations that overlap with that. What should, how should citizens be thinking about this? Not just about when we know certain facts or if we know certain facts, but how do we, how do we circle back from this? How do we get back from this? sort of slow motion crisis that we are currently in, if we can? Well, the only way, uh, accepting for, for the moment that, you know, some people don't, wouldn't agree with you that there, there is a crisis now. Some people are very happy with uh, the way things are now. But so just accepting uh, the premise of your, uh, of your question, what I always tell people is how important it is, as former President Obama just did in his speech in Illinois, emphasize how important it is to vote. And when, in my speaking engagements around the country, and I get asked uh, that question, you know, what, what can I do as a citizen? What can we do? And that's it, is to vote. Because I think the only way this, uh, you know, the situation we're in today is going to get resolved is, is at the polling place, not through impeachment or the invoking the 25th Amendment, which either one of which 
will only amplify, magnify the polarization and divisiveness in this country. So in some sense, you, you, you really see whatever Russia did, they were able to exploit things that existed in this country before 2016. I mean, a key point being the level of, of partisan polarization, all these kind of, you know, things that happen even during your, your tenure in government. Is that, is that basically accurate? Yes, it is. I mean, they, they, uh, they exploited the divisiveness that, that already exists in this country. And I, in my view, uh, just what I think, I don't think this president has done much to try to unify uh, this country uh, and to, uh, and to, promote, uh, uh, you know, better relations among all the tribal camps. If anything, he's exploited them as well. Right. And the Russians uh, understand that. And uh, so my concern, and again, I get back to the motivation for writing the book, was what the Russians are doing to exploit that divisiveness uh, and exploit the polarization in, the, in this country and thereby weaken us by causing uh, our citizens to question the veracity of our uh, traditional long-standing institutions. Is, I know that there's, there's been some discussion of, I guess, what people who study Russia call the Gerasimov Doctrine, this idea that a country like Russia that may have strategic ambitions that in a sense it can't afford in conventional terms, with conventional military, so on and so forth, that you have this, you know, thinking about a much broader horizon of areas to kind of have quasi-conflict. And that is what, that is where what happened in 2016 grew out of. Looking beyond, there are obviously other countries that see us as, as geostrategic rivals. And, and we saw in 2016 how the internet, social media, the whole sort of cyber dimension, both in civilian life and military life, opens up a lot of potential threats. How do you, how does, how does this, beyond, you know, having, having a, trying to create a, a, a more cohesive political culture in, in the United States, how do you see that threat the U.S. faces beyond Russia? Because obviously there are other countries, uh, Beside Russia, and and who will see what happened, and how do how do we how do we confront that in ways that you know go beyond again, sort of changing our uh, you know, tight, uh, making our domestic political culture more healthy, but in an intelligence sense, in how, how do we how do we confront that? Because we seem in some ways um, maybe uniquely vulnerable to that. Well. Uh there may be other countries that uh, may be thinking about that kind of thing, but uh, no, no other country is as aggressive about this as the Russians. And it's going to be that way for as long as Putin is around for at least, you know, five more years or whatever, six more years of his term. And, uh, you know, he'll contrive some other way to stay in power after that. So as long as Putin is in power in Russia, I view Russia as our primary uh, strategic threat. Longer term, China is a threat to us, but not because they're trying to undermine our political system. Uh, In China's case, it's because of their tremendous economic power 
And at some point in the future, they're, 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 the size of their economy is going to exceed ours and their scientific and technical prowess, which is uh, quite impressive. So I think short-term, Russia is a threat, long-term, uh, China, but, but not in the way Russia is. The other dimension that we don't talk about very much with Russia, uh, we focus entirely on this uh, so-called information operations campaign, sort of the, the soft war. At the same time, the Russians are mounting a very aggressive modernization of their strategic nuclear arsenal. You may recall President Putin's speech of last March, in which he laid out, described, even with uh, spiffy graphics, five weapons of death or weapons of vengeance, so-called, uh, which are quite threatening to this country. You know, the Russians only have one adversary in mind when they do that. That is the United States. So for the next few years, in my view, Russia is, is the most prominent existential threat, and no other country in the world is as aggressive as they are in trying to mount the other campaign of theirs, the soft campaign of information operations, which is designed deliberately to undermine our system of government and our society. Let me ask you this. I know that I know that someone in in your position, an intelligence professional, is at a remove from the political dimensions of of, of an administration like the Obama administration. But there was that there was that. Um, you know, exchange that President Obama and Mitt Romney had in the 20, in that 2012 debate where the Romney campaign was pushing this point that Russia remains our, as, as you're saying now, our primary geostrategic challenger threat. And uh, President Obama in that exchange, and I think fairly, at least up until uh, the uh, Ukraine crisis in, in 2014, that was not the administration's sense of, of the world we were living in. Was that, well, were they the were we wrong, or like how's every, that, you know, sorry, go ahead. The Obama administration, like every administration, uh, I think begins uh, on the premise of trying to, to reset or establish a better relationship with Russia. And that's, uh, that's President Trump's uh, a sensible theme. You know, wouldn't it be great if we'd get along with Russia? Well, sure it would. Uh, if their behavior merited it, which it does not. And, of course, Russia's behavior uh, exhibited itself, or its, its true colors, notably in its invasion of Ukraine and, and uh, seizure of, of Crimea, uh, their despicable behavior in Syria, their, su- their support of Assad, a, a, a war criminal, and some of the other nefarious things they, they do around, uh, around the globe. Um, I will say, I, I will have to say that uh, uh, in, in defense of President Obama, that one thing he was uh, very consistent about and, and very committed to is, uh, you know, the, the, his interest in our presenting un, our unvarnished view on threats. He, he didn't necessarily agree with all of them, but he never, ever wanted to slant or taint intelligence or have it slanted or tainted as it was presented to him. Let me, we're, uh, and we, we really appreciate your making yourself available for this interview. There's one more point I wanted to uh, ask you about, comes out, of, comes out of your book. One of the things that has been a topic 
in the last couple decades for people who think about U.S. political culture is the, the fact that, you know, since there is no draft, the great majority of people in the country have no have, haven't served in the military and, and that military culture is arguably has has become more distant from the, the main uh, civilian culture. Now, you not just grew up in a in a uh, military setting, but almost literally were raised in the intelligence world because of your father. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your that part of your life, that that has been something that is that has been sort of a through line you know, since since childhood, growing up in that world, living in that world, um, what would you what would you tell listeners who are uh, in in many cases probably a good generation younger, and just that is a that is a world that they don't know anything about. What would you how would what would you tell about about it about that kind of upbringing? Well, well, for me, you know, I was raised in it. That that was. Uh that was my environment. That was my world. Um, and although I didn't, certainly in younger years, didn't appreciate, uh, understand what exactly it was that my dad did. I think a key, uh, a key event for me was, uh, when we were assigned, he was assigned to Germany in the late fifties and he was an operations officer for an army signal intelligence, uh, battalion that was, uh, collecting against, uh, uh, the Soviets and uh, East European militaries, and we were stationed in Germany. And it was my senior year in high school, and I got to hang around with some soldiers who weren't that much older than me. Uh, and I began to just inferentially appreciate uh, the nature of uh, what they did and how they uh, looked at the army. None of these were, you know, in many cases, college graduates, or, or at least had some college. And pretty intelligent and pretty dedicated, and I began to appreciate the importance of uh, being a part of something bigger than yourself, and the importance of uh, selflessness and, and public service. And I just kind of grew up in that environment. Uh, my dad served in, uh, in the army for as an as intelligence officer for 28 years, World War II, and through Korea and in, and in Vietnam. And so I just grew up in that. That just uh, that's just that was my way of life, and it just seemed natural for me to want to follow suit, uh, which I did, and uh, served in the military for about 34 years, and uh, another 16 in three civilian capacities, all in the intelligence community. And I just I feel that uh, that uh, it's a sacred public trust, and there's no higher calling than. Uh, participating in keeping this nation uh, safe and secure. Now, so where, when did your service start? What year? Uh, Well, I enlisted in the Marine Corps in February of 1961 in the Marine Corps Reserve, and then I ended up getting commissioned as an officer, a second lieutenant in the uh, Air Force in uh, June of 1963. So that means your, your period of service went all, I mean, not, the Vietnam War somewhat preceded that, but the sort of the the the, the most heavily involved years of our involvement in, in in the Vietnam War, the sort of the aftermath of the Vietnam War in for 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 the armed right. services, there's was a lot of uh, turbulence, rethinking, you know, ferment within the U.S. military after the Vietnam War, sort of taking stock 
of what had happened, uh, all of that. How much did, did, did that, both the, the Vietnam era and the post-Vietnam era, figure in? Was that, how, how was that formative in your experience of how you thought about um, being in the U.S. military, what the U.S. military's role is, what its relationship with the, with the civilian political culture and so forth? Well, I, uh, I went to Vietnam fairly early, 1965 and, and 66. Uh, you know, I've been in the service a couple of years, <clears throat> and it was uh, unquestionably the most miserable year of my life, both personally and professionally. I almost got out of the Air Force uh, after, um, uh, after my year in Vietnam. I, I was rescued, I guess, and mentored by some people, and I, I went back for a second tour. Um, I was stationed in Thailand, but flying, uh, conducting reconnaissance missions over Laos and Cambodia, and, and did a second tour in 1970-71. And, uh, and then, of course, endured all the aftermath uh, of the Vietnam uh, era, and uh, all the demonstrations, the anti-Vietnam movement and all, and all that. And, of course, that had huge uh, implications for the military, which went through a very traumatic period as well, recovering from uh, Vietnam. Uh, one comment I would make, uh, you alluded to, to it earlier, about the relatively small part of our population that, is, that has actually served in the military. That's true, and, and there are downsides to that. But given a choice between an all-volunteer force and that which is uh, impelled by dr the draft, I would take an all-volunteer force every time. Uh, as a commander uh, in my second tour, and I certainly witnessed this, uh, particularly in the Army and the Marines, uh, the leadership challenges when you have non-volunteers uh, in the military are very, uh, very daunting. So we're much better served even though it does create uh, a situation where the military is a very small part of the population, which is isolated from the rest of it, and uh, is you know doing a lot to, to defend this country. Uh, I will say one thing that does, I think, kind of help this is the number of veterans, both women and men, who are running for Congress, which I, I, I find uh, very encouraging. And that is something we need in our Congress is um, uh, more awareness and knowledge of, uh, of the military and by, by virtue of having people that, that have served in the military. Right, right. Um, James Clapper, thank you so much for your time. The book is Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Uh, came out in late spring. I think it had a, it had a run on... You know, there's all these different bestseller lists now. Um, I, I encourage people to read it. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay. I, I hope you, you enjoyed that interview. It's always, uh, I'll tell you, as, a, as, a, as an interviewer, it's always a little, it's always kind of a little delicate when you know you're probing in an area where the person know stuff that they can't tell you. Uh, it's always, you know, because you want to say, like, dude, tell us. Like, what did you see about Trump? Like, you must know, you clearly know stuff that we don't know, so, like, fess up, right? Tell us, tell us. Now, you obviously can't do that. Um, but you always want to, you, you, or at least I feel the need to 
you know, you want to respect the fact there's certain things they cannot say. And so it's always a kind of a, I don't know, there, there, there are, there are certainly more aggressive, uh, interviewers and that, that, that may sometimes be a fault of mine. Uh, but it's always, it's always a funny thing when, when, when you're trying to kind of pull out, uh, pull out impressions and information, but also keep the, keep the conversation flowing, I guess is, is how I'd put it. I'm all, I, I, as you could tell, I'm, I'm also very interested in his take on the work of intelligence, the work of the uh, career military, uh, how it is in, in, in many ways, a, to most of us who have not served is a very alien experience not not in a negative sense necessarily but it is just a a an experience that that most of us have little just have little knowledge of and and I do think that is the way and this is you know one of the things that I think is one of the one of the um more pernicious aspects of our contemporary political culture is the hyper valorization of military service. Um, not everybody agrees, but I think most of us agree that, uh, being in the military involves inherent dangers to your life. Um, it means a certain amount of, of sacrifice. You're not going to get rich being in the military. Um, you're separated from your family members and so forth. It's, it's, it's something that it is a, a profession, a sacrifice that, that merits our respect, um, and appreciation. But often in our contemporary political culture, there is the hypervalorization that is often used as a political tool, as a weapon. And often for very specific partisan purposes, almost to the extent that, that we as a civilian society exist for the military, as opposed to vice versa. And I do think now that there's, there's, I mean, you see it in a, in an extreme and, and, and almost cartoonish way with President Trump, who obviously never served himself. So the whole thing is sort of clownish and ridiculous, but it's something that, that certainly predates Trump. Um, it predates 9-11. And I do think that a key aspect of that is the all-volunteer military. That as the, as, as the, as, as a smaller and smaller percentage of the population served in the military, that alienness has created this dimension of our political culture. Again, what I would call the hypervalorization of of military service and if 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 you look certainly before world war 2 but even after world war 2 um the the society had a there there was um there was less of this sense of the military as as sacrosanct basically for lack lack of a better word and my point here isn't like we should like you know be given people who serve in the army or the air force or the, or the Marines or, or, uh, or the Navy, like a hard time. 
but there is that dimension. And I, again, I do think that it is largely a byproduct of the all-volunteer military. Although I would say I think he, I think Clapper is basically right that in civic terms, and I would assume he he would say large. You know, I think he was talking about, about largely about uh, readiness terms. This is probably preferable, but it also does have these have these downsides. You know, I think about my um, my father, who was born in 1938, uh, served in the military for, I think, four years. You know, like many people in his of, of his generation uh, enlisted because you enlisted because you knew you were probably going to get drafted pretty soon when you got out of college. So you enlisted. And he was like a medic. He never served in um he served in the very early Vietnam period, but he was never deployed to Vietnam, uh, served in the early 60s. Again, people of that generation, when kind of the vast majority of men served in the military, had a different, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different attitude. I think it's something that we uh, need to think about um, in, our, in our broader political culture, um, that, that military service should be respected and supported in the sense of all the things that we, uh, you know, VA care, all the different, we, we owe a lot to people who, who go out and often have traumatizing or physically damaging experiences on our behalf or, or families who lose loved ones on our behalf. So respect and support but not fetishization of military service, which I think is one of the problems in our contemporary political culture. In any case, I didn't really plan on going off on that on that on that whole uh, editorial, but it's a, it's a it's a subject um, that is of great interest to me and probably obvious to most of you, but it's probably worth saying. Just as long as I'm saying all these things, I never served in the military. Um, it's funny. I was uh, I was getting out of college right right at the time during the build-up to the first Gulf War. So the, <laughs> the, 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 the questions of like, should there be a draft or should there not be a draft certainly had my attention as a, as, a, as, a, as a young man graduated from college. In any case, thank you so much for listening to the Josh Marshall Podcast. I want to remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Uh, next episode, uh, my colleague David Tainter, my co-host, will be back. And so uh, excited to see him back. He's been in Italy. And uh, we will talk to you next week.